0: Well, I would say we have already reached cost parity with uh, large-scale renewable energy, wind and solar photovoltaics, uh, wind farms and solar farms in most of the world now are competitive economically with new fossil fuel uh, power stations and with new nuclear stations. Certainly in my country, uh, they are already cheaper, much cheaper than new, uh, coal-fired power stations, and they're reaching a stage where they will very soon be competitive with existing coal-fired power stations. The costs of, particularly of electricity from wind and solar, are still falling quite significantly, and so it's just going to be a matter of a few years before, in many parts of the world, it will be cheaper to replace existing fossil fuel power stations with. Uh, wind and solar farms than to uh, continue operating existing fossil fuel power stations.
1: Have you ever gone to the zoo and saw the tiger, the lion walking back and forth looking miserable with that weird psychotic trance where you can tell they're totally going nuts and tired of being locked up in a cage? Well, we had an incredible company, actually charity reach out to us, Big Cat Rescue. They're focused on creating the world's first augmented reality zoo. You can go check out incredible animals in their habitat, get up close and personal without having big cats being caged like, let's face it, miserable animals. This is something that I was really, really passionate about and they wanted to support the show, sponsor us and get the message out there so we can improve both the way kids think about animals and the way that humanity interacts with the creatures that we've so often subjugated. I think this one's incredible. I think this one's important. You guys can check out arzoo.me, that's A-R-Z-O-O dot for more details. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the cash app, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it she loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the cash app and coffee. Seriously, disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix and save money on coffee. And now let's get on with the program. Welcome to the disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds, share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies, transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. In case you've been living under a rock, climate change is real. Sorry for anyone who doesn't believe it, but we're going to be talking big time. How do we change the future? How do we get to a more energy efficient, sustainable future? And really, how do we make a world that we can all live in? Today, we've got Mark Diesendorf on the program. Mark researches and consults in the interdisciplinary fields of sustainability, energy, energy policy, urban transit, economics, and practical sustainability. Prior to joining the Institute for Environmental Studies, UNSW Australia, He's been a principal researcher and lecturer at various institutions and worked with a number of Australia's leading conservation and governmental policies focused on sustainability and innovation. He's co-founded or led numerous Aussie and New Zealand-based initiatives focused on wind energy, sustainable energy, innovation, and appropriate technology for the environment. And he's the co-editor of the book Human Ecology and Human Economy, Ideas for an Ecologically Sustainable Future and the author of Greenhouse Solutions and Sustainable Energy. He's one of the the top guys when it comes to climate change and what we can do about it and this interview was a ton of fun i'm sure you guys will enjoy it. as we discuss the true truth about climate change and what it actually looks like now why we're probably headed for a six to an eight degree fahrenheit increase in global temperature yeah when you hear that two to three degrees that's celsius guys how we can design a better world from the ground up and why we may need to do it why governments are so incompetent when it comes to handling climate change the reason renewables already won and where we'll be in 10 years Why AI and automation will displace a ton of jobs and necessitate a totally new economic and societal system. Why nuclear power makes our world actually much less stable and more dangerous. Where Mark sees the most innovative climate change solutions being enacted. And why we're still going to need hydrogen fuel in a green world. If you haven't subscribed already, make sure you do that now. You don't want to miss any of these episodes. We have the world's smartest folks on. We get them for an hour at least to talk about the big problems facing all of us. If you guys enjoy this, make sure you subscribe disruptors.fm slash itunes and if you haven't yet leave a review that's how more people find us in this podcasting ecosystem which is blooming and evolving if you love what we do make sure that other people are finding out about us so that we can make this into a more sustainable deal and if you've ever considered supporting us or you want to support independent media disruptors.fm slash patreon you can also find us at patreon.com slash and now without further ado i give you mark diesendorf <coughs>
0: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: So, Mark, you've spent most of your career focused on sustainability and, in general, making the world a better place. Tell me a little bit more, 30,000-foot overview. How did you get here? And then we'll get deep into the issues.
0: Uh, Originally, I studied physics and mathematics. So, I was a physical scientist. And when I did my PhD, I, I did it on conditions in the center of the sun. So it was really theoretical physics of the solar interior. And when I finished my PhD, I visited California uh, and met a scientist there who told me that my thesis was being used by the hydrogen bomb people at Livermore to try uh, being used to help them improve their computer programming for trying to determine uh, to describe what happens in a hydrogen bomb explosion. And and that really shocked me greatly. Uh, I had thought that military applications of my thesis were non-existent, and that's brought me into the social responsibility and science movement. So I felt that I didn't want to do science for the military or, or big business or big government for that matter. And so that's that shock really guided my career. And and then subsequently, I became involved in energy research. And I was one of a small group of scientists and others in Australia who started doing research on renewable energy at a time when really there wasn't much of a, an industry worldwide. What year renewable. was this? So 1978, I, I co organised a national conference on energy and people in, Aus, in, in Australia, and we had international uh, visitors as well. And um, I was aware already then of the threat of human induced climate change. And although renewable energy was still in its infancy, particularly on a large scale, I moved into that field. It wasn't always easy because uh, coal is. A very politically very powerful in Australia and tends to dominate uh, or has tended to dominate research uh, in the past in Australia. But gradually I became more, more of an interdisciplinary researcher on energy. So I'm interested in the science, in the engineering, in the economics, the politics, the social science aspects and so on.
1: Where are we in the science and economic side of clean energy? We always hear that we're moving there, we're getting there. When do we reach cost parity across the board? And what does it mean?
0: Well, I would say we have already reached cost parity with uh, large scale renewable energy, wind and solar photovoltaics, uh, wind farms and solar farms in most of the world now are competitive economically with new fossil fuel. Uh, power stations and with new uh, nuclear stations. Certainly in my country, uh, they are already cheaper, much cheaper than new uh, coal-fired power stations, and they're reaching a stage where they will very soon be competitive with existing coal-fired power stations. The costs of, particularly of electricity from wind and solar, are still falling quite significantly, and so it's just going to be a matter of a few years before, in many parts of the world, it will be cheaper to replace existing fossil fuel power stations with uh, wind and solar farms than to uh, continue operating existing fossil fuel power stations. So that's the situation as I see it. Now, there are some exceptions. In the United States, uh, natural gas is is very cheap, much cheaper than in Australia and Asia. Uh, so uh, so in the situation in the US is that renewables may not necessarily be competitive economically with some natural gas power stations. But increasingly around the world, uh, renewable energy is taking over and the main barriers are no longer... Uh, technological nor economic, but they are mainly political, uh, very much political in the United States and in Australia, where the fossil fuel
1: industries are powerful. Absolutely. Let's send those coal workers back into the terrible coal mines. But um, then to, be, uh, to, to be a little more optimistic, what is, the, what is the driving force bringing down the cost? Is it units of scale just being able to reach a larger and larger audience? Is it something <laughs> yeah. to do with tech? Well,
0: both. Uh, scale is very important. So the, the size of the market for wind and solar is growing very rapidly around the world. And this is bringing down the price. But also research and development is playing quite an important role, particularly with solar. And um, in fact, my university, formerly known as the University of New South Wales, now UNSW Sydney, Australia. Uh, has some of the leading solar photovoltaic researchers uh, in the world uh, holding many of the world records for efficiency of solar cells. Um, so it's, it's a combination of um, markets growth and uh, technology improvement.
1: And your goal is to go full 100% renewable in Australia. Why is it full? Why is ninety 99% not enough? I feel like there's something uh-huh. there.
0: I'd be very pleased to get to 99% if we're a long way from that. But we are in a situation where uh, 15 years or so, coal supplied over 80% of Australia's electricity. Uh, That has now declined to around 60%. And renewable energy is growing rapidly in some parts of Australia. But uh, there's a lot of resistance. Now, why 100% renewable electricity? Well, that's really the bare minimum for 100% renewable energy because energy isn't just electricity, it includes uh, energy for transport and for industrial and residential heating uh, as well. And electricity is the easiest form of energy to transition to renewables. Uh, some transport... Uh, transition is already occurring, so we're seeing the growth of electric vehicles in some parts of the world, most notably in Norway, where uh, more than half of new motor vehicle purchases in Norway are now pure electric. But in the transport area, there's some forms of transport that cannot be simply uh, transitioned to electricity. So I'm thinking of air transport and sea transport and for, particularly for long-distance air transport, we're going, to, we're going to have to produce a fuel using renewable electricity, for example, to, to split water into hydrogen and oxygen, and either using that hydrogen as a fuel or combining it with nitrogen from the atmosphere to form ammonia, and then using ammonia as a fuel in aircraft and in ships, uh, ammonia is much easier to handle than, than hydrogen. So transport is going to be more difficult and it will take longer to transition. Uh, some forms of heating where uh, at present a fuel like gas or natural gas or coal is burned, they can be rapidly transitioned to uh, electrical heating, but other forms of heating are, are more difficult and um, they also may need a renewable fuel. And this, again, is not as advanced as uh, renewable electricity.
1: What do you think the future is for vehicles? Do you think it is the electrified vehicles in the grid Tesla style? Or do you think it is the hydrogen, let's use the existing pipes and let's create a fuel that's as clean as it gets in terms of transporting vehicles?
0: I think in the long term, there is a role for hydrogen or its combination in the form of ammonia, as I said, for air and sea transport, but electric vehicles are far ahead of hydrogen for, for land transport. And so I really see all electric, pure electric vehicles replacing the internal combustion engine for motor cars and trucks and buses and so on.
1: And what about in terms of where we are today? So I know in all of the developed world, less the U.S., the acceptance of climate change is pretty high. Where do you see us headed in terms of creating some type of world standard that people actually decide to, to hold ourselves accountable to, to prevent the worst of climate change as impacts?
0: Well, uh, unfortunately, world cooperation or cooperation between nations on climate change has proven to be very difficult to achieve. And the only agreements we have at present are voluntary ones. And so I really see the progress of combating climate change occurring from individual countries, individual states and cities. And cities around the world, many cities are heading for 100% renewable electricity for starters, and I would see that Progress on these scales will gradually drive the whole world on a, on a kind of international cooperative scale. Uh, scale. But I, I really don't feel terribly optimistic about international climate meetings. Uh, what we are seeing is some countries taking the lead, uh, countries like Denmark, uh, Germany, uh, Scotland, which is almost a separate country, not quite. Uh, and several United States of the United States like California and North and South Dakota uh, and and several others really taking the lead. In my own country, uh, the state of South Australia has more than half of its annual electricity generation coming from wind and solar already and, and that's also the situation in Denmark and uh, both Denmark and South Australia are on track for heading to 100% renewable electricity by the early 2030s, I would say. So I guess I'm suggesting that we'll see leadership taken by some countries, states and cities, and eventually the market for renewable energy will grow to such an extent and the prices will fall to such an extent that most other Countries, states, and cities will have to, to join the party, really.
1: So, pretty much a, a bottom up approach. Top down isn't going to work in this case.
0: Well, I guess we have to keep trying top down, but I'm not optimistic. And I, I do think most of the hope is with bottom up. The problem, of course, is that bottom up is slow and it's an evolutionary kind of thing. And we are now in a situation, really, of climate crisis. Uh, that we we're seeing the frequency of droughts, heat waves, floods, <laughs> firestorms increasing quite substantially in several parts of the world, including the parts of the US, Australia, and even Northern Europe above the Arctic Circle. We're seeing firestorms that would have been unthinkable several decades ago. So, I guess my feeling is that we will end up making the transition to renewable energy and energy efficiency if civilization survives this and other threats. But by the time we get to predominantly renewable energy systems, I worry that climate change will have reached a stage where it'll be totally irreversible and will actually be accelerating. So we have the threat and the promise that if we act reasonably quickly we might be able to to stop the threat from eventuating,
1: and if we do nothing, the planet potentially comes up, becomes a Mars.
0: Well, it becomes so hot that parts of this planet will be uninhabitable, and there'll be huge uh, refugee movements which dwarf the current movements, which are only measured in a few million. Uh, we'll be looking at huge, tens of millions of people, maybe hundreds of millions of people having to move and not being made welcome, of course, uh, in places where they they desperately need to move. So I'm not saying that this is inevitable, but to me, this has now become a realistic scenario that we must strive uh, through declaring a climate emergency. And I'm pleased to see that Quite surprisingly, the British government has indeed declared a climate emergency, uh, but their policies have yet to catch up with this declaration.
1: Yeah, the the big bark, but the small bite. What do you think, um, <laughs> care to speculate on Trump's wall? I've heard it argued that that's a way to keep out people below the border once the worst effects of climate change really start to hit.
0: Well, I mean... I only see this from a distance. Uh, My impression, ill-informed probably, is that the wall will be mostly rhetoric, uh, not a a real wall extending, uh, separating the whole of Mexico from the whole of the United States. Uh, I suspect that Trump will be satisfied with some token sections of wall that will photograph well, but the whole idea of building a huge wall between the two countries seems to me rather uh, unrealistic and incredibly expensive and there's no way that Mexico would be able to to fund such a wall uh, and I'm not sure that Americans would want to spend so much money so many billions and billions of dollars on on building a wall it's not that simple it, prevention may be better than cure, so working more actively to fight poverty in the world uh, to to create jobs i think is likely to be more effective than trying to stem the migrations which i think will get greater and greater as climate change uh, bites
1: i would agree but it's much easier to sell a pain medicine than it is to sell a vitamin because <laughs> cool. of when you're dealing with uh, when you're dealing with the symptoms well that's
0: that's true and it's certainly true that most medical research also goes to cures rather than to prevention, unfortunately. Uh, I guess that's the way of the world. So, yeah, we humans are funny things. Uh, We've evolved in a way that we have the capacity for cooperation and love and positive construction, and we also have the capacity for war, destruction, hatred, and selfishness. So we are very mixed creatures and we have concentrated on advancing our technologies and not given enough attention, as I see it, to developing our social systems, our governance systems to, to really genuinely create a better, a
1: better world for the vast majority of people. What do you think are the reasons behind that?
0: Well, there is a very strong thread of greed and selfishness and a desire for power and dominance, unfortunately, in humans, not in all humans, but uh, that seems, and one could argue that maybe that's an evolutionary thing, that as evo- in the early stages of evolution was vital for the survival of species, but then against that, we also see, even in the animal kingdom, many examples of cooperation, some conscious and some unconscious. And so I see the potential for us humans to, to build a far better world. But when I look at politics around the world, it's, uh, it seems to undermine that
1: confidence. Do we need to have our Independence Day movement where suddenly aliens or something terrible is coming to get us all and we have to unify? Is that, in your mind, one of the only ways that that's possible on a large scale?
0: I don't think that's going to happen, actually. Uh, We can cooperate on, on some things, but I just don't see it happening. And as far as aliens go, I must admit, although I would love to to see some evidence of other intelligent beings or more intelligent beings <laughs> in other planetary systems, we are so far from them. And so it is so impossible to really uh, interact with any other aliens. And, and it cuts both ways. I mean, with the nearest uh, stellar system beyond our own, uh, the Centauri system is four light years away and while it's nice to dream about warp drives and things like that, it's n- it's really not conceivable at present that we could actually travel near the speed of light and, uh, and visit some of these other systems, planetary systems around other stars. Uh, I think it's fairly clear that any, li- any other forms of life within the solar system outside the Earth are likely to be very rudimentary, although it would be fascinating to, to discover them on perhaps one of the moons of Saturn or Jupiter. Uh, that would be fantastic. And to see if, if they are related to us through DNA or whether they have evolved
1: entirely different
0: biological systems.
1: The octopus question. Where did they come from? It's a, it's a fun one. It's one I, it's one everyone likes to speculate on, but it's one that of course is pure speculation because we got nothing in terms of, in terms of facts to look at. But for facts that we do have, climate change, everybody has different models. Where are we headed? How many degrees? How bad in your opinion do you think it will get if we start to take more extreme actions to improve?
0: Well, the current situation is that we are headed for an average temperature increase of three to four degrees Celsius, so double that for Fahrenheit. And that's just the average. But the higher latitudes uh, will warm about double that average. So northern Europe, the northern part of the Americas, uh, northern part, far north of Asia, uh, you could be looking at 6 to 8 degrees Celsius, 12 to 14 degrees Fahrenheit warming. I mean, the, the changes would be huge if that happens. And my fear is, as a former mathematician, that my fear is of what we call nonlinear effects, the feedback effects. So as the, the Arctic melts, the Earth reflects less sunlight back into, into space and so it, it warms more rapidly. As the, the tundra melts, it emits greenhouse gases, methane and carbon dioxide, accelerating global warming. And there's a whole range of possible positive feedbacks to global warming and very few negative feedbacks. And so that's why it is urgent to take action. It's urgent uh, for the United States as the world's biggest economy to take action, far beyond the existing states that are taking some action. It's, uh, we're, seeing, we're seeing real action in Europe, which is encouraging, but, and we are seeing considerable action in China, actually, which is now the world's biggest greenhouse gas emitter. So China is building renewable energy at a huge rate. Of course, it has a long way to go because China, China's uh, energy system at present mostly comes from coal. So, but renewable energy is growing very rapidly in China, both wind and solar. And, of course, they're taking over as the leading manufacturer of solar electricity panels Uh, solar hot water systems, wind turbines, you name it. So, and my own visits to China actually give me some hope because I see there um, two different movements. I see the conventional movement, which says, we can do everything the United States can do, only bigger and better. And that is, of course, a terrible threat for more and more pollution and global warming. But there's also a strong sustainability thread in the United States. It's the minor thread at present, but it's quite significant in the scientific community and other areas of research in China. And they're saying we can build China, China's economy, and we can do it without making the mistakes that Western countries have made by transi- transitioning rapidly to renewable energy systems and cleaner technologies. And you can see those two driving uh, threads, they're more than threads in China, coexisting at present. And I certainly hope that the sustainability thread continues to grow in China because their impact on climate and on the whole world through their uh, rapidly growing economy is already huge, and it is just going to get bigger and bigger. Do
1: you think it's easier for a country like China, given the centralized command structure?
0: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's much easier, provided they have enlightened leaders, or at least leaders that listen to expert knowledge. And I do know that the political leaders in China meet annually, I believe, with leading scientists from the Chinese Academy of Sciences. So there is that that channel of input which is encouraging but of course the question is how do they weight their various endeavors do they put their main weight on building their industries their trade their political control expanding their political control building their military or do they put more and more effort into uh, green technologies and green jobs
1: in theory you could do both but it's tough to do both when the the rubber meets the road sometimes well that's that's right i mean
0: countries can really only focus on a few goals at once it seems although it would be nice to to see them multitasking
1: on a larger scale then again none of us can actually multitask anyways so as long as we are as long as we're getting the most important tasks done What do you think about scientists and advocates who are focused less so on reducing emissions currently and more so on we'll call it alternative methods? So be that geoengineering, be that George Church with his mammoths up in the Arctic. What um what do you think about some of these other methods to try to change the the picture, so to speak, and either take carbon out of the atmosphere or prevent the effects from accumulating, at least for the short term?
0: Yes, I'm all in favour of uh, further research and development on taking carbon out of the atmosphere because that probably will become essential. And if it can be done reasonably cheaply, it's certainly worth doing. I don't see it as a substitute for transitioning uh, the energy system and transitioning agriculture and forestry to uh, cut greenhouse gas emissions and ultimately remove them altogether. So, yes, taking emissions out of the atmosphere is a worthy uh, area for research. Now, as for some of the other areas like geoengineering, I can understand why some scientists are, are pushing geoengineering, but I really worry about it because the dangers of geoengineering are huge. I mean... Most en- geoengineering <laughs> is designed to change the climate and the trouble is we don't actually have full control over our climate. We can certainly warm the earth. Unfortunately, that's proven to be too easy since the Industrial Revolution. But geoengineering to uh, to reflect more of the sunlight that falls on the earth, which can be done in various ways by pumping Sulfur dioxide into the upper atmosphere by uh, pumping iron filings into the ocean to encourage more photosynthesis uh, from the organisms in the ocean. All these things can have multiple outcomes that could go completely out of control. And this is actually a very worrying area because it is possible for individual countries or even individual companies that are big enough to experiment on a scale that could actually have terrible climate impacts and, uh, and actually make things worse. So I, I'm hoping that we don't have to, to go to geoengineering uh, because it's, it's adding, it could be adding one more out-of-control measure to uh, the existing uh, climate change.
1: Or it could be a bandaid until it's not a bandaid and it bursts.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, possibly. I I suspect that if it is implemented on a large scale, we we could see the adverse effects very soon, very quickly, and have no means of actually controlling them. So we could it could mean that rainfall would cease to come to Africa. Uh, that f- Large areas of the earth could no longer grow food. There's a huge range of possibilities, very threatening possibilities from
1: geoengineering. Today's Disruptors Podcast is brought to you guys by Pantheon.io. Whether you're developing a personal brand, building your business, or working with a large organization, online presence, guys, it's critical to success. Pantheon's the number one leading web ops provider. They help more than 285,000 websites, and they're trusted by small businesses, startups, rated as the leading products for small businesses and enterprise, and one of the top 10 software products of 2019 by G2 Crowd. Pantheon's web ops platform helps you build, manage, and optimize the most important brand asset, your website, because let's face it, if you're site sucks or it's incredibly slow, consumers aren't happy. Whether you're just beginning to build that dream or already well on your way, Pantheon can help deliver the best future-proof experience for everyone. Listener offer, guys. Check it out. Pantheon.io slash disruptors. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S to learn how Pantheon can help you power your online presence and make it that much more awesome. Again, that's Pantheon.io slash disruptors. Consider supporting them to support independent media like us. Help us make this sustainable. Pantheon.io slash Slash disruptors for more details. So I know you've talked a bit more about governance and human rights as a ecology, so to speak, and ways to make the world more sustainable outside of the the green side of things. Tell me a little bit more about how your work focuses there, and what some of the biggest thoughts or fears are.
0: Ah, uh, well, <laughs> that's a big, big open ended question. So thank you for that, but um, I can probably only take it in bite size chunks. Um, well, let me raise one of the fears that we haven't mentioned yet, and that is the risk of nuclear war. It seems to have gone out of the press, but in fact, the risk is very high, very high at present, and it's exacerbated by the growth of nuclear energy because its nuclear energy is very effective for training people in nuclear weapons. It's very effective means of cloaking the development of nuclear weapons. And a number of countries have already done this. So I'm thinking of India, Pakistan, uh, North Korea, and South Africa. All of them have used nuclear energy as a means of helping them to develop nuclear weapons and to cloak that development. And of those countries that are listed, only South Africa has actually developed and then destroyed its own nuclear weapons. Uh, now, also a number of countries have started to, use, to try and use nuclear energy as a basis for either producing uh, plutonium-239, which is one, nuclear explosive. It's the one that the atomic bomb over Nagasaki used, or to highly enrich uranium. And that was the of course the bomb that was dropped over Hiroshima to end effectively end World War Two. And a number of countries commenced the use of nuclear energy to develop either plutonium 239 or enriched uranium, 235, and and fortunately, either didn't succeed or, or discontinued. So I'm thinking of let me see: Argentina, Brazil, South Korea, Taiwan, and I'm sad to say Australia. And all these countries and several others. I mean, France's military nuclear. Industry is inseparable from its so-called peaceful nuclear industry. It has common facilities, for example, for uranium enrichment. Uh, the British nuclear weapons program was based mainly on military reactors producing plutonium, but this this plutonium was supplemented by their first generation of nuclear power stations. So, nuclear power, nuclear energy is And the growth of nuclear energy, if it it continued to grow, is is another threat to the whole world in terms of increasing the risk of nuclear war. The good news, from my point of view, is that nuclear energy is not growing. Nuclear energy, uh, in absolute terms, in terms of electricity generation, peaked around 2006 and hasn't really increased. And there's only a few countries that where it is growing rapidly, mainly China and to a lesser extent, Russia and South Korea. And then there's a few countries that might be building a single reactor. But it does look like the retirements and closures of old nuclear power stations will end up balancing the the opening of new ones. So that's a bit of a worry, even though nuclear energy does not emit greenhouse gases during its operation. although of course some greenhouse gases are emitted during mining the uranium mining the raw materials for the reactors and constructing them and so on so that's i've picked out that but i, I think and certainly the bulletin of the the uh, bulletin of the atomic scientists and their their famous clock is still only a few minutes to midnight so they're certainly very well aware that the risk of nuclear war hasn't gone away, even though
1: discussion of it seems to have gone away. Perfect. It's like it's tough, too, because it's hard, for, it's hard for a mom or dad that smokes to tell their kids you can't smoke. So people see that the US and China and all of these other countries are the ones who are telling them, we don't want you to have nuclear weapons because we might need them, and we don't want you to be able to need them. It's a it's a hard it's a hard nut to crack, so to speak. This is this is something that's got to be international effort. How how do we how do we get, make progress on this where progress is, and for lack of a better term, other than the scientific community stalled.
0: Well, there is some slow progress being made. Not so much with the big nuclear powers like like the U.S. and China and Russia, but there is an anti- international movement called ICAN, I-C-A-N, uh, which, in fact, which was recognized, if I remember correctly, by a Nobel Peace Prize. And it is, has succeeded in uh, getting a treaty up for signature, and many countries are actually signing it, that they will not develop nuclear weapons. Now, I guess that's the best At the international level, that can be done. But I think in terms of uh, nuclear energy and its contribution to the proliferation of nuclear weapons, uh, I guess the good news is that wind and solar now are much cheaper than nuclear energy. So probably less than half the price of electricity from nuclear power stations now, and even offshore wind In in Northern Europe is now competitive with uh, electricity from nuclear power stations in Europe. So I I don't anticipate seeing any more growth in nuclear power. But it is a bit worrying seeing the saber rattling uh, at present concerning North Korea, concerning Iran, and of course the United States is one of the rattlers of the sabers. Even a small nuclear war. Is a, a big nuclear war. Well, yes, but even a small one can wipe out billions of people. We now know from climate models that the, although the, the damage from the blast and the firestorm and the initial radiation of nuclear, a small nuclear war would kill many, many people, maybe tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people, the main uh, as it comes later with nuclear winter, with all the soot that is driven into the atmosphere, then we get temporary global cooling, ironically, to the extent that the world's agriculture would be seriously impacted. there'd be so much shading of the earth that the earth's agricultural output would go down. And this is even for a so called small nuclear war, for example, between India and Pakistan. And again, there's no real public discussion of, of the, the hazards of nuclear war and, of, and the possibilities and the impacts. So we really must work incredibly hard to ensure that we never do have a nuclear war on this planet. It really could mean the end of human civilization. Oh, yeah, some people would survive, but
1: the damage could be measured in billions of deaths and i don't think any of us want that we've seen enough hollywood movies so in term, in terms of that it sounds like nuclear weapons could be a potential geoengineering solution let's say we explode some bombs somewhere between the u between uh the planet and the sun to block out radiation
0: no it doesn't work like that unfortunately <laughs> no, that would be too easy no unfortunately a nuclear war Exploding nuclear bombs in space will have le- very little effect. It's The danger comes from exploding them on, on Earth, which creates this huge layer of soot in the atmosphere. It would indeed temporarily for a year or two uh, solve global warming, very temporarily, but it would do this by destroying a large amount of agriculture around the world uh, from lack of sunlight, basically. And so really, I see the threat of nuclear war as equivalent in impact to the threat of global climate change. We really have these twin major threats. And then in the background, we are, of course, even without climate change and without nuclear war, we are rapidly destroying many of the natural systems that that we humans absolutely depend on. You know, it's funny, because economists tend to dominate the world, we have this funny idea that we humans can exist separate from the natural ecosystems that surround us. But anyone who studied biology and ecology knows that this is a complete myth, that we are totally dependent upon natural systems for for our own survival, even though if we live in a big city like New York or Shanghai, it isn't obvious. We, live in, we may live in an apartment and we're surrounded by concrete jungle, but we depend totally on a whole range of natural systems and the climate system is just one of them. The oxygen cycles, the nitrogen cycle, the phosphorus cycle, photosynthesis. We are impacting all these natural cycles that provide the, the climate that we need to, to keep us alive that provide the food that we eat, that provide the air that we breathe. All these systems depend on the functioning of the biosphere, the the natural system, and we are rapidly destroying it. And it looks now like millions of species are going to be lost over the next several decades, mainly due to the expansion of our habitation of destroying the habitats of plants and animals and insects and the impacts even on the bees. I mean, we are totally dependent on bees for fertilizing our crops and the bees are under threat at present. Gosh, it sounds like a doomsday uh, talk. I apologize for that. But I, I think we're past the stage of living in a kind of dream world uh, a dream world where super new artificial, technolo- artificial intelligence technologies will somehow uh, be our future. We have to come to grips with reality and actually face the problems and solve them. And I believe that if we move quickly, we have the capacity to solve these problems, but we have to move quickly and we have to move effectively.
1: It would be a pretty dangerous game if Harry got all the way through his book series, and at the end he found out his magic wand didn 't work suddenly <laughs> you 're faced with a problem you can 't comprehend and a solution that you just knew would be there it's uh It's troublesome to say to say the least. What technologies are you most outside of what we 've talked about today? What technologies, trends, et etc. are you most encouraged by, and why
0: uh, well, certainly. We've already discussed renewable energy and energy efficiency technologies, so uh, they are one important area. But I guess mainly I'm focusing on the technologies that we need in other areas. So we need agriculture, a form of agriculture that is less destructive of our land and of, of species, other species and habitats. And really, we haven't given enough given enough. Technolo- enough Focus to to that area. Uh, We need technologies in a very broad sense. We need more the software and the organisational way to to learn to govern ourselves better in a way that is uh, less destructive and which gives everyone an opportunity to have a good life on this planet. And I mean, the wealth is there. The planet. Is, a, is, an, is an abundant planet, even with the current stages of destruction of some of its natural resources. So the planet is there, but we also need um, simple technologies, education of women, particularly in developing countries, uh, contraceptive technologies. And so you can see that I'm, I'm not so much into the gee whiz technologies I can see the value of AI, uh, but I can also see the threat it delivers to to the majority of jobs on this planet. And so that means we need a technology in a broad sense. We need to develop a new kind of economic system that perhaps provides a basic minimum income for everyone so that we can cope with a period where very few people will actually be in work in, in the traditional sense. And um, at present, we're sort of going blindly to technologies that will replace, really, the vast majority of work at at the middle levels, whether it's producing products, manufacturing products, or delivering services. Even in the education field, where human the human influence between teacher and student is so important, we're seeing very rapid move to replace humans with online material and so on. So I guess I'm, I'm more concerned with the broader aspects of technology. Look, let me explain it this way. I see technology as having three components, and the hard, hardware is just one component. The second component is the software. The software tells us which technology we use and how to use it, and then the third component is the orgware, the organisationalware, the kind of organisational structure, institutional structure, legal structure in which the hardware and the software are embedded. And we've been very good at building the hardware. We've been not bad at the software and we've been hopeless at the organizational organisationalware, which, which needs careful strategic planning. You can't leave it simply to the market. And, we, and ultimately, of course, we need to develop a new kind of economic system because endless economic growth on a finite planet is impossible. So we need to develop a way of transitioning to a steady state economy. Maybe that economy is run mostly by machines, intelligent machines, but we need to develop that economy and that society so that people who are not employed, which will be the majority of people on the planet, will have a, a reasonable standard of living. And that's challenging. So e- even if we get through climate change and avoid nuclear war, we have to face the technological revolution that's coming now. And we can't face it simply by building new technologies to, to control the old technologies. We actually have to build new economic systems, organizational systems, to ensure that that people still can live, uh, have a decent living on this planet.
1: I think that's almost a harder problem than the other ones. The The big problem I see is to be able to change the organizational structures. In a lot of ways, and in a lot of countries, that's called treason. And yet, it in a lot of ways, it's probably what's needed going forward, because What's got us here is certainly not going to get us there. And what's got us here has gotten bigger and more paperwork bound than ever and exponentially growing every single day. I I worry about a situation where, let's say we do get closer and closer and closer to automation. I worry about having a factory full of incredible things that's just being produced and produced and produced to run the economy, but no one with the jobs and people to, let's say, uptight with themselves and values of what they do and don't want to give to others that we don't even distribute the shit from the warehouse and we let everyone starve. I kind of I mean that I, that's taking it to an extreme in terms of hyperbolizing but th- th- I don't think that's too far outside of the US mindset currently.
0: Well, I agree it's a possible scenario a very very worrying possible scenario. And fortunately there is starting to be some public discussion of this issue uh, because uh, artificial intelligence is growing so quickly, the products are growing so quickly, and we, t- although we tend to focus on uh, the Tesla 3 and things like that, uh, there is really some, some serious discussion starting amongst academics and even amongst some of the big corporations on what happens. There's serious discussion starting about a universal minimum income and how we actually organize an economy to do it. But it's early days. We're we're really just starting. There is quite a a significant movement towards uh, a steady state economy, one that does not grow in the use of energy and materials and land, but still distributes wealth uh, among the people. And uh, I've actually been involved in a small way in some of the research in this area, um, and some very interesting models have been created. So, for example, uh, someone called Peter Victor has built a macroeconomic model of Canada and investigated what happens when you it transitions in the computer model to a steady state economy, and as you would expect. If the only thing you do is stop economic growth, millions of people are thrown out of work and the whole economy collapses. But if you actually design a strategy where you don't just transition to a no growth economy, but you also uh, share the work around, the remaining work around more evenly, uh, you build up self reliance within, in this case, the Canadian economy, so that Canada ignores the so-called law of comparative advantage and starts manufacturing more of its own products, uh, it is possible to produce a a steady-state economy in which employment is maintained. And in in my own country, in Australia, um, some academics have produced a steady-state economic model using an entirely different method, they have looked at what we call the biophysical economy. So they have an input-output model of the stocks and flows of materials and services in the economy, not a monetary model. And they have also investigated what happens under the steady state conditions, and they find very similar results to the Canadian macroeconomic model, that if you do nothing, but stop the growth of the economy, disaster occurs, as you would expect. But if you do a range of things, building up local manufacture, building up local industries, sharing the work around, it is possible, theoretically possible, to build a steady-state economy that is environmentally much sounder than the existing economy, and in some ways, in terms of social justice, in terms of reducing poverty, in the community, creating more jobs, it is better from that point of view. Now, these are early days. These are s- still fairly simple models, but they do suggest that there may be a way forward That we, so that we don't have to be caught in this trap of endless economic growth until the whole system collapses because the planet's boundaries are exceeded, so to speak. And, of course, we already see in some areas, planetary boundaries being exceeded in terms of land use and so on. So uh, so this is another issue that is starting to get attention and um, starting to get serious attention, actually, how to build a sustainable economy. One, it may grow in monetary terms, but if it does, monetary growth has to be disconnected from... Biophysical growth, so that there is no growth in the use of energy and materials and land. And even if it's a renewable energy economy, ultimately you can't have endless growth in energy because you only have to think that it's energy that turns the wheels of our motor vehicles, it turns the wheels of our industry. And again, planetary boundaries will be exceeded even if we have a renewable energy economy which tries to grow endlessly.
1: Would we have to make it stable though? So I feel like we could solve a lot of the issues just by factoring in efficiency and some type of climate um, model into, into GDP. So let's say GDP, we took that number divided by the total number of hours worked and divided by the, um, the amount of carbon emissions created for said amount of, of work of GDP, et cetera you would have something where it could grow, it could decline. But let's say our GDP this year was $10 trillion. Next year, everybody works 5% less. Oh, wow, our GDP just went up a ton. The year after that, we reduce greenhouse emissions 20%. Holy cow, our GDP just went up a fifth. So, you could have something where it still has growth in terms of a numerical value, but that growth doesn't have to be... Do you see what I'm saying? It's not. It's not necessarily physical growth. It can be mathematical growth.
0: It could be, but I do feel that we put too much emphasis on GDP. Oh, it's
1: it's horrible as a metric. Well, it's (laughs) GDP.
0: GDP goes up when there's a disaster. You know, we've had huge uh, floods, uh, bushfires, hailstorms, all influenced by climate change, I should say, and that drives up GDP. Uh, just just where I live in my part of Sydney, Australia, uh, we had the worst hailstorm ever experienced. And we can understand this because as the atmosphere warms, it holds more water. So we had these hailstones up to eight centimetres up, hmm, what's that, uh, three and a half inches across. Like a baseball, Jesus. Jagged, jagged. And where I live, uh, every roof that was a tiled roof was seriously damaged. In fact, m- most of our roofs, my own roof, was utterly destroyed. And uh, I've replaced it with um, a metal roof. Metal roofs were dented, but they weren't uh, penetrated. But local economic activity has going up dramatically. All the roofs being fixed and replaced, so GDP, and if you apply it on a national scale, you get a national disaster. GDP goes up, so it's it's an indicator with severe limitations. And I would rather look at indicators that take account that some economic activity is very damaging, and some or physical activity that influences the economy is very damaging. So yes, and there have been attempts to create better indicators than GDP, but I think that's only a first step. And I feel that we really need to go beyond this now to focusing on the the biophysical economy, getting that into equilibrium so that we're no longer we cease to expand our use of, of land and materials and energy. We become at least steady state in terms of biophysical stocks and flows. I think that's essential for sustainability of the planet. And and that, of course, means very big changes in the social and economic systems around the world. So that's going to be very difficult. For example, if one country decides to change and it has significant trade with other countries, uh, it would be extremely difficult, very difficult for that country that wants to change. Because we are all tied together by trade, and that's a good thing. But it's not such a good thing when, when we're trying to change the system. It's very hard to change the system bottom-up in this case.
1: Yeah, you almost need a world order.
0: Yes, and I, I don't think that's going to happen somehow. Individual governments don't want to give up some of their power, and we see this we see this in the United Nations. We see this in the climate change negotiations. We see this in, well, probably future negotiations about uh, about uh, digging out the resources of the Antarctic because at present there is a treaty, a temporary treaty, that stops any country uh, from exploiting Antarctic resources. But... That will come up for review and, again, you'll have, we'll have individual countries or, more accurately, individual governments uh, struggling for advantage and ignoring the advantage of keeping the Antarctic pristine, in, in, ignoring the collective advantage in order to gain uh, profit for individual
1: countries and their industries. Game theory is great, but in the end, everyone loses and it's just a game. (laughs) So, this has been a a fun one. There's been some ups. There's definitely been some downs, but I think it's important to have the downs as well. If you wanted to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, before you tell them a little more about you and where to find you, what would it be and why?
0: Uh, A call to action. Well, I think many people uh, are just engaged in the struggle of living, of earning an income. And so I can't expect people who are struggling to, to really become terribly active in the change. But for those who have the opportunity, I think the important thing is to join. Find a group that you feel comfortable with, that, that you can work with, people that you can work with. And work for change, work for positive change, work for a better world, whether it's an environmental organization, a social justice organization, uh, an overseas aid organization. I think one of the things that impresses me terribly when I feel a bit down about the state of the earth is the Right Livelihood Awards. It's, they're known as the Alternative Nobel Prize and they're awarded to individuals and groups that are working for the common good whether it's in environment or peace or social justice and if you go to the the website of the of the right livelihood awards you can read some of the some of the histories of the people who've been awarded this this magnificent prize and it's so encouraging to see the achievements of so many men and women around the world, either individually or in groups, to try and make this, a, this world a better place. So I would say be inspired by those who have been awarded the Right Livelihood Awards. Join a group if you can and, and, and work towards a better world. I think that's and, – and, and really, I would say the majority of people do want to work collectively for a better world. Uh, It's it's really a minority of people who want to dominate, who want to be the dictators or the presidents or the prime ministers or the captains of industry that exploit other people and exploit the planet. These are minority. We've got the numbers. Those of us who want a better world have the numbers. We don't have the concentrated wealth perhaps, but we do have the numbers. So I would say, go for that. Join, enjoy. Gandhi
1: had a good quote: "Be the change." And I think that's a good place to good place to wrap this up. Mark, where is the best place for people to find more about you and what you do?
0: Well, um, they can uh, visit my website at UNSW Sydney. Um, oh, the web address is a rather long one. will have so links.
1: In, we'll have links in the show notes, guys. Check them out. That's great.
0: Yeah. And um, have a look at. uh, I've got a number of popular articles listed there as well as scholarly articles. I, I follow the philosophy that if I just publish a scholarly article, for example, on renewable energy, maybe 20 people will read it. But if I use that as a basis for a popular article, maybe a few hundred people will read it. And if I get media coverage, maybe a few thousand people will get part of the message. So, it's it's the idea of trying to do the solid research but try and get the message out communicate the message so that it doesn't just stay within the um, hallowed halls of academia
1: yeah i've got this time machine in my basement it's going to change the world but no one knows about it when people don't <laughs> when people don't know what's happening it's not uh, it's not all that effective or important thanks for coming on today mark oh thanks for having me on your podcast and thanks for tuning in guys hope you guys have enjoyed it If you have, make sure you subscribe in whatever podcast player you're using. And until next time, we'll talk to you later. Cheers. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matt Ward If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.